Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 3rd, 2022, and my guest is programmer and writer Devin Zugel. She has two podcasts, Tools and Craft and Order Without Design, which is with Alain and Marie Agnes Berteau. And some of you may have enjoyed Alain Berteau's episode on Econ Talk, one of my favorites, and her podcast is named after his book, Order Without Design. We're going to talk about a remarkable piece that you wrote, Devin, a couple of months ago at Freethink. Inside the crypto black markets of Argentina, Devin, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. I love this podcast a lot, so it's really exciting to come on on to speak. This piece you wrote could probably be the basis for a semester-long course in economics related to monetary policy, trust, innovation, regulation, exchange. It's a really fascinating piece, but before we get to it, Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to experience cryptocurrency in Argentina. Yeah, so um, I guess I've had my own version of a semester-long course, which is over the last few years, um, I spend about a month a year now in Argentina because my fiancé is originally from, from Buenos Aires. And so we go down there to spend time with his family. And something that was just so striking to me the first time I went there was that almost every single dinner conversation ends up at some point coming to the topic of inflation, the topic of monetary policy. And this is with people who are not economists. They don't find it interesting as an intellectual exercise, but they're all terrified day after day that their savings are going to be obliterated tomorrow. So it's sort of a basic basic aspect of survival is swapping tips about how to beat inflation, where to store your money so that the the government can't take it. Um, And something that was especially striking to me was that Argentina actually works fairly well in some ways. Um, You know, if for for listeners who have never actually been there, um, you might be imagining a place like Honduras or like somewhere that's completely a mess and you walk around and you might get killed. Argentina is not like that at all. Um, Buenos Aires in many parts actually feels a lot like a European city. Um, the downtown is somewhat safe. I mean, I would, I wouldn't walk at 3 a.m. by myself. Um, but overall it's, it feels quite safe. And I think it's just very interesting that there's this underlying, um, financial turmoil that is just creating problems constantly. And it's been the case for hundreds, a hundred years or more. Um, so anyways, that's my education about Argentina and crypto. And my personal background is that I'm a, trained as a software engineer. Um, I also uh, write a lot about urban economics in particular um, and sort of the building and design of cities. That's cool. Uh, Argentina is an interesting economist like to talk about Argentina because about 100 years ago, it was one of the most prosperous countries in the world. And now it's not. Your observation, which is interesting, is that it's it's not as unprosperous as one might think, but it has pursued a, um, a very high level and erratic, most importantly, as we'll maybe discuss, high level and erratic level of inflation that I presume, and 
you're welcome to comment on this if you want. But I presume is the fact is due to the fact that their their tax system and their respect for say compliance with taxes is so poor that the government basically uses money printing as a way to finance uh, government activities. But it, part of its problem, if not a significant part of its lack of uh, economic progress over the last century is due to the fact that inflation has been a, a perennial problem. Yeah, and um, people point out, as you did, that that Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries about 100 years ago. And in s- sort of monetary terms, that was true. They They had a high GDP per capita. But I always sort of push back when people say that because in some other ways, they were not so wealthy. So they... And I think also it was a bit of a fluke of the particular time period. So um, in the early 1900s, the the first few decades, Argentina was purely an agricultural economy. They had not really made any industrial progress or, or not much at all. And this also happened to be a time of very high commodity prices. And so as a result, they were making a lot of money, um, in, in part because of like World War I. Um, there was a lot of grain production had shut down in other parts of the world. So Argentina's grain was much more valuable. Um, and so it made them rich tem- temporarily. But they, I, I don't see that as sort of real wealth because they it was they weren't really moving on to the next economic stage um, of sort of industrial development. So I think that a lot of people say, "Oh, it's such a mystery that like they were doing so well and then they stopped doing well." And I I think it's actually more like they were never doing that great. And there was sort of a confluence of factors in the early 20th century um, that made them quite wealthy for a while. But those factors went away, and then also mismanagement of the economy uh, in in part due to inflation and some other issues. Um, exacerbated those problems. A fantastic observation and always a good reminder that be skeptical when someone tells you about it when something started, if they perhaps cherry pick that. It's interesting. I've heard that forever. Uh, And maybe it's not a particularly useful comparison. Um, You know, another similar thing is when people look at, say, the progress of South and North Korea uh, after the Korean War or East and West Germany after after World War II, those those are clearly uh, defensible times to start the comparison because that's when they both split apart but arbitrarily saying you know in 1922 Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world may be misleading <laughs> so I that's a great that's an excellent point but the what we're going to start with is um, th- this this reality that inflation has been uh, a, a perennial problem it's it alternates between uh, high levels of inflation or rising levels of inflation or hyperinflation, hyperinflation being times when the prices are rising so rapidly, money's usually being printed so rapidly that people stop using money and, and turn to barter and, and many basic economic things break down. Yeah, in the last hundred years, um, Argentina has seen an average of 100% annual inflation so for, to, to put that into context, that means that on average, every single year, um, the currency has lost half of its value. Um, now, that, that statistic could be a little misleading in the sense that some years it's much, much lower and some years it's much, 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 much <laughs> higher and you see hyperinflation. So if you pick any random year in the last hundred years, it, it, it could be a very different number. Um, but I mean, the money if you had money from Argentina a hundred years ago, it would be utterly worthless now. Um, you know, if, if you if you have something a hundred times, 
it gets real small real quick. Yeah. Um, another, another fun, well, fun uh, is maybe not the right word. Another interesting statistic is um, if you had had a hundred thousand dollars worth of Argentinian pesos in 1995, uh, they would be worth about $310 today. Um, that I, I, that means like if you, if you held your savings in, in pesos, they're gone. Um, so Argentinians don't, do not, they do not do that anymore. Um, they, they tend to save in USD. Uh, that's the typical preferred payment method. Um, or if for, for people who are poorer and maybe don't have access to dollar markets, they will save in bricks. Um, and they will literally buy brick, a pallet of bricks each time they get a paycheck and they'll build their house brick by brick. Um, so that that's, that's sort of the store, their store of wealth. Uh, it's not fully monetized because bricks, um, are hard to transfer. They're a little heavy. So you, people don't really trade in bricks so much once you buy it, it's just like a savings vehicle. Um, but, uh, that, that works out all right for people. And there's also no mortgage industry whatsoever in Argentina. So, um, people really do have to build things very incrementally. They can't, they can't build out into the future. That was one of my favorite parts of the article, um, using bricks. Uh, it's, it's hard to carry if you're going down to the grocery, down to the grocery, you know, you put, I guess you could put two bricks in your pocket, one on each side, maybe, and then you could carry a couple, uh, and then pay for your food with four bricks. But what you're saying is that generally it's not used for exchange purposes. People are not swapping bricks, but, and I didn't think about this when I was reading it, but that, that example is, is so extraordinary. Uh, you know, when you when you can't trust the banks, you put your money under your mattress, which is, is creepy and scary. A fire comes and you've lost all your money. A thief comes, you've lost all your money. The alternative, of course, is inflation comes and you've lost all your money. That's what we're, we're going to be talking about. But the brick thing is a fantastic money under the mattress example because it's a lot. they're a lot harder to steal. Because you mortared them and you put them in place, uh, and and they're not really. It's good that they're not a currency, but really, if you're going to expand your house, you, you do have the the option of uh, of using the bricks, and and that's your your store of value. It's your way of, of keeping some level of things. But could you then break them down and and swap them to someone eventually? Do people do that? I don't know. Um... I, I would imagine so. They they probably hold their value pretty well. Um, buildings do like, all over the world end up using recycled brick. So I don't see why not. A another um, similar savings mechanism. I, I live here in Miami and um, in Miami, there's a very booming real estate market. Uh, there's a joke that uh, everyone in Miami is a realtor uh, and there's some truth to it. And part of it is because people in countries like Argentina um, in, throughout Latin America, the, the wealthy people will purchase an apartment in the United States as a way to, to store their money. Yeah. Um, and so wealthy Argentinians will have, you know, a $500,000 apartment in Brickell or, or down, downtown Miami um, as a way to save for their child's college education. Um, this is very inaccessible to the average Argentinian. This is just for very wealthy people um, who can afford a, an expensive apartment. But um that's one of the reasons why there's such a mismatch of realtors versus other people in the economy, because there's all of this external demand to buy real estate in Miami. The advantage of an apartment in Miami is it could appreciate. 
And that way, it's more than just a store of value. It's it's better than holding it in a bank with a very modest, if any, sometimes no return. And what you're paying for in a bank is just the safety of your money uh, not being taken away from you. But obviously, in Miami at this current time, at least in the short run, the, it could it could appreciate. But one of the things you start off in your article is talking about some of the challenges for people in Argentina to have any international transactions. And, and, and we're going to start talking about Bitcoin, but... I, I want to mention to people, uh, you know, I, I have I have a daughter in London. I live in Israel. I have family in the United States. Uh, when you have any kind of international life, as I do, which is very modest, uh, not a global financier, but if you have any modest international life and you want to transfer money to someone in another country, it's incredibly unpleasant in 2022, which is kind of shocking. It's, you'd think it'd be kind of easy. You know, there are options. There's pay now that weren't available 20 years ago. There's there's PayPal. Uh, PayPal takes a pretty good chunk of your money to make that transaction, a transfer of, of money to people. So in Argentina, you don't just have the general challenge that international transactions are have a bit of a high transaction cost to them or a fee. Uh, you just can't do it, right? There, there's just no way to buy foreign goods, no way to transfer money, no way to invest if you're only going to be using the legal Argentinian uh, monetary system. Yeah, I was going to say no no legal way yeah. um, or or no easy legal way with, that doesn't result in you losing a ton of your money. So the challenges, the, the list of challenges uh, is extremely long. I will just name a few of them, but trust me that it, it's, it's harder than what I'm about to describe. Um, so one one challenge is that um, Argentina has a fixed exchange rate. What that means is that the rate uh, when you want to buy or sell dollars when you have pesos is not set by the market. It is set by the government. What what that means is that the government, um, the official exchange rate results in the government effectively taking half of your money when you try to exchange it. So um, when if you have USD, let's say you 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 um, are an American company and you want to pay an Argentinian, um, you're paying them in dollars and it's going to get transferred to pesos before it hits their bank account. The government has set the exchange rate such that they end up keeping more of the dollars and fewer of the pesos end up getting to the employee. Um, right now, it's about fifty percent. That's compared to. Uh market transaction compared to which a black you can market rate avail yeah. yourself of if you're courageous yeah exactly which I, I should have i should have explained that before so so there's so there's the official rate the legal, the legal rate and then there's what's called the black market rate or uh, they call it dollar blue in 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 spanish um and this is a very very different number uh, i actually haven't checked it today of what the exact rate is it it fluctuates every single day um but usually it's much different so like you it, you'll get twice as much money if you use the black market rate versus the the government rate and i think in the us people tend to be kind of bashful about breaking the law um at least at least in my friend circles in Argentina everybody breaks the law every single day because otherwise you get half the income um and like you can't pay your rent <laughs> and so people you know the, everyone knows exactly what the black market rate is all, at all times politicians will even quote it like it's it's well understood that this is this is out there long story short everyone tries to be in the black market as much as they can there are certain transactions where that's really difficult um but for the most part, people people will try to to exchange their their money in the black market, um, and so like one tip if you ever travel to Argentina, 
do not exchange money at the airport or, or exchange the minimum amount. Instead, when you arrive, find an Argentinian that you trust and ask them to introduce you to their cueva. Cueva is the Spanish word for cave, which I like. Um, and that person, the, the cueva is a person who is a black market foreign exchange. And it sounds really sketchy. Uh, it sounds like you're going to go do a drug deal or something, but it is not. It's it's totally it's totally fine. If, if someone um, introduces you to one that they trust, you're, you're in safe hands. It's going to be some random office in a building. Um, and every Argentinian who has any money at all uh, does this a few times a week. Um, so anyway, that, that's one of the one of the many challenges. The, the the government also has a bunch of other like very high um, customs uh, taxes and stuff like that. Import import costs that also make it very expensive to move things around. Um, it's also illegal to take out dollars at an ATM in Argentina. So there's no ATMs where you can get dollars. Um, the list goes on and on of how the government makes it difficult to use money and move it across borders. Let's go talk about the Cueva for a minute because it's, you know, it's fascinating. Um, I I don't know if I've ever done a black market monetary transaction in my life. Um, but, you know, when you're in a foreign country, there, there are places that have, quote, foreign exchange. Often in many countries, of course, there's, there's You've implied that they're market-based, that the price fluctuates on any one day, but it's not controlled by the government. But in this case, because the real market, the mar the true price is so different from the set price, it's, quote, everyone. Now, it's not, of course, literally everyone, or maybe it is for people who live there and know how to, how to, how to maneuver. Yeah, it's not. It's not everyone. So unfortunately, the the average income of an Argentinian is quite low. There's a lot of people who don't make much money in Argentina. And so they don't, it doesn't make sense for them to move any money into dollars to, to save because they don't have any money yeah. to save. So I was, I, I believe that the average, the median person in Argentina doesn't have enough money to save anything. And they're, they're living paycheck by paycheck. Um, and so they just keep their money in pesos, but anybody who has enough money to, uh, want to save money will usually be, be transferring it into, into USD and then putting that USD in their mattress or like a hole in their ceiling or something like that. USD being US dollars. And, and it, it's an extraordinary, um, thing, you know, when, when you read about hyperinflation, say in, in uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany after World War One, uh, you'd read about people who would take wheelbarrows uh, of of cash to the store, literally, because it took so many pieces of paper to buy stuff. Suddenly, uh, and certainly nobody uh, after they cash their paycheck puts it anywhere other than into stuff. You, you buy stuff, and what what's happening in Argentina, which because stuff is useful, uh, and you don't. It doesn't depreciate, whereas in a hyperinflation, your money is depreciating with every minute uh, or certainly must feel that way. But what you're talking about is, is just so extraordinary. The idea that and so alien, I think, to, to many Americans and, and maybe many people elsewhere, the idea that you would want to convert your paycheck out of your native currency quickly because it will lose value is um, not an experience most people have. And then you're now holding a foreign currency. Which, of course, exchanges 
you know, on the street I, in, in all kinds of ways. You, it's very fungible, right? It's very easy to convert it back into pesos if you decide to reduce your savings or you need it for some unexpected uh, cost. But as a general idea, if you're wealthy enough to save, the idea that you can't save in your home currency is peculiar. So now you have a choice. What do you save it in? The dollars are one option. There are others. Yeah, so there some people have saved in other countries' currencies besides USD. USD is by far the favorite. Um, however, over the last few years, crypto is starting to make an impact um, and climbing up the charts in terms of how many people are using it to save. Um, I, I asked my fiance's brother at one point, like, why, why do you hold crypto? Um, isn't it kind of stressful for it to be so volatile? And he said, yeah, it's volatile, but at least its value goes up sometimes. <laughs> like He's used to having a currency where it just goes down, like it's just nose diving. Um, and so for him, the fact that it might go up is pretty, pretty exciting. Awesome. Um, he, he was kind of joking, but there's also some very, some real truth to that. And so some other aspects of, um, so, so crypto is starting to fill in a few gaps in the Argentinian economy. So in particular, holding a lot of cash is pretty dangerous. And it's physically bulky if your house burns down. You touched on all that before. There's a lot of problems to saving in cash. Um, crypto solves some of those problems. It also creates some new problems. So there, there's trade-offs, but for different types of contexts, it might be useful. So for example, um, right now, if you want to buy a house in Argentina, the, the typical way you will do this is you will get a briefcase full of $100 bills and you will meet somebody and there's like an escrow agent. And... and, and Actually, I should I should say the the housing market is dollarized, which means that when you buy a house, people will put the price in dollars. This is actually against the law, but uh, because the government wants you to use pesos, but people do it anyways. Um, and the the housing market is in dollars because imagine you know it, take, it can take quite a while to close on a new house, and imagine that suddenly the peso loses fifty percent of its value overnight. If you had if you had denominated the sale in in pesos, then you could get fifty percent less for that house. So this is a really big transaction, um, and so it's been moved over to dollars, and it's been like that for quite a while. So you cannot really use a bank account to to move that money because it's in USD, and so people bring suitcases full of dollar bills to buy a house from somebody, and that. You can just all imagine all the issues with that. Uh, if you get robbed that day, there goes your life savings. There goes your house. Um, it's it's inconvenient. They have to count it. It's like there's like a whole process just to count the dollars. Uh, it's it's just it's not how you want to buy a house. Um, so but the, the escrow crypto, the escrow part is also a really interesting part of it. Mention mention you were about to mention that. Oh yeah. So um, basically, you you have to have like a third party who can, can serve as a an observer to the transaction and say that this really happened because it's not logged anywhere. Um, and that is actually a very challenging problem in of itself because both parties have to agree that this person is trustworthy and that person pretty easily could just run off with the cash. And if it's cash for a home, it's enough. That's usually enough cash to, you know, maybe you could go retire off of that money. Yeah, it's um, fascinating. And and escrow meaning that this is often money that's going to be held by neither party, which means 
usually it's a financial institution in, in a country that has a successful banking system. But if you don't have a successful banking system and you're transacting in dollars, which you're not allowed to do effectively because you can't put it into the bank, um, you need to find that third party. And that's just not going to work very well a lot of the time. So I assume, you know, houses don't transact maybe that often. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if it made it uh, a less liquid market. Yeah, I, I haven't looked into any stats on that. But anytime you add a bunch of friction to a process, um, you reduce the frequency of that process. Yeah. So this is a place where um, I think crypto is just starting to make an impact. I think it's still very, very, very rare. But uh, there's no reason it couldn't become much more common. Um, some people, if you were to use crypto instead of dollars... So, and crypto could mean a number of things here. It could be in Bitcoin. It could be in Ethereum. You could do USDC, which is pegged to the dollar. Um, you, you could use anything you let's want. Let's talk about that for a sec, because many people haven't heard of that, and I almost know no, nothing about it. Um, Bitcoin, I, I know, of course, longtime Econ Talk listeners, many of whom bought Bitcoin back in 2011, I think it was, when we had Gavin Andreessen on, or I think 2016 or so, when we had Wences Casares. Uh, that's what I bought. Uh, I have a tiny amount. Uh, I didn't buy in 2011 because I didn't know how to do it effectively. I bought in 2016 or whatever because there was a wallet. And that meant you didn't have to be a programmer to be able to hold your Bitcoin in, a, in an effective way. And for many people who've never used it, it's very scary. You have a, you have a great uh, line from... Uh, the grandmother who wanted to hear about Bitcoin, who wanted to use Bitcoin when she heard about it from her grandson in 2016, when she said, money the government can't touch, help me buy it right now. And you're right, she's been holding <laughs> it ever since. So, you know, for, for a lot of people, it's a, it's an, for, in America or in a Western country with a banking system that's stable, Bitcoin's a, a possible investment with a, with a, it's an investment with a possible upside. There are obviously people who have an evangelical uh feeling about it, that it, that it's going to change things in, in dramatic ways. But in a country like Argentina, and we had a discussion somewhat along these lines with Mark Andreessen recently, you don't have a reliable banking system. It's a whole different set of motivations. And I think that one of the more interesting aspects of your article is that a lot of the aspects of Bitcoin that its advocates uh, preach turn out to be uh, either used very differently or they're different things that people actually care about. And so, I, but I interrupt you because you said there's Bitcoin, Ethereum, people might've heard of those, but stable coin, talk about that just for a sec again and so that people can have that and then you can carry on, sorry. Yeah, for sure. So um, there's lots of different paths to go, go down there. So, so for one, stable coins, uh, in in the U.S. context, don't sound so useful. They actually do have uses, but it's like less clear uh, for for the typical user and who's not super deep into crypto. Um, in Argentina, though, uh, a stable coin. So, so sorry, a stable coin is um, typically a cryptocurrency whose value is pegged to something. Um, in the, in the case of USDC, it is pegged to the U.S. dollar. And so one coin of USDC equals one US dollar, and uh, it, that's how it stays that way. There's a number of other stable coins as well that I won't get into, and they have different uses. But for um, USDC the, the, and uh, a number of other stable coins that are also pegged to the US dollar, you can 
treat them roughly like US dollars. And from the perspective of um, an Argentinian, this is very exciting because now suddenly they have ac access to digital banking again um, without having to use an actual bank that they trust. And like to, to back up as to why it's so important to them, um, I could I could spend the whole episode just talking about all the different times that Argentinians have been screwed over by their banks and by governments taking money away from them. Um, but I will just stick with one that is particularly um, incredible. In 2001, uh, there was a banking crisis and the banks and the government responded with something called El Corralito, the little corral, where they basically shut down access to the banks um, and anyone who had their savings in the banks at that time, which, which was a lot because they had been, they had just gone through a 10 year period of quite a bit of stability. Uh, a lot. So a lot of people trusted the government more than usual. A lot of people just could not access their money for, for almost an entire year. When they did get their money back at the end of the year and they were able to access it again, they discovered that all of their dollar deposits had been converted into pesos and the pesos had lost two thirds of their value in that time. Um, and so, People were very angry, as you might expect. Um, and that anyone who had had their savings in, in a bank account learned, I can never do that again. Like, I, I, this will ruin my life. Um, some of the, the, some adults that I know and some of the, their parents had had their, sa their life savings in these bank accounts at the time. And there were people who committed suicide. Like, it, it was really a uh, very dark time for many people in the country. Um, and so people learned we don't want to put our money in banks because the government or the bank will do something that makes a huge problem for, for me. Um, so that's why they've moved to cash, but the cash has all these issues. And so USDC, but by being cryptographically secure and not something that the, the government or the local banks can tamper with becomes extremely attractive. Um, and the stable coin is nice because now it, it holds its value in, in a more um, predictable way compared to the other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are extremely volatile, very difficult to plan your life around them. Um, and so those are more effective for speculative reasons and, and other reasons, uh, whereas USDC can be more useful for for day-to-day -day transactions. So the stable coin, though, again, I know almost nothing about this. Stable coin... It's pegged to the dollar. Someone's got to do the pegging. So you point out that there's an irony here that, you know, Bitcoin's famous cryptocurrency in general is famous for its decentralization. But stablecoin has to have uh, an agent, a institution, an organization that is making sure that it's one stable USDC to the dollar. Right. And that's why. Uh, there's still some uncertainty around it because that might not be able to persist. That might not persist, right? Uh, and you're somewhat at the mercy of whoever's moving that around. Yeah. So this is this is a place where um, I think some people might read my article and think, "Oh, she's a complete crypto bull," and other people might read my article and think, "Oh, she's a complete crypto skeptic." And the answer is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> The the when I look at the Argentinians' use of crypto, it's both much more than people realize and um, much less philosophically pure than people realize at the same time. So, stablecoins uh, they can hold their peg in a 
variety of different ways. There's, uh, well, I, I won't go down all the different paths of, of how they can work. Um, but for something like USDC, someone has to basically have a dollar in reserve for every USDC coin that exists. So that if you want to exchange your USDC for USD, then you can. Um, if this is something that needs to be audited, people have to trust the auditor. There's like a lot, there's a lot of trust to, to say, yes, this, this coin is equivalent to one USD. And one challenge we, we've seen over the last few months that a number of stable coins have actually missed their peg. The, the people are now valuing, you know, at 98 cents on the dollar instead of a dollar, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but the entire purpose of a stable coin is to be at a dollar to a dollar. So it's actually a very big deal. It's called um, and there have been some, coin. <laughs> yes, not unstable coin. And there have been some like uh, Terra stable coin, which have just completely lost um, all value. And it's, it's, it's very much a trust game. Um, and so I think it's reasonable to point at the situation and ask like, why is that any different than trusting Argentinian banks or uh, the Argentinian government? And I think that that's a pretty good question to ask. Um, these, these institutions, I think I would still maybe trust USDC over the peso just because we know the peso will just keep losing value. It has done so basically for its entire existence. Um, and USDC has been fine so far. And so if I had to take a bet between the two, yeah, I would prefer the one that has not, you know, continually lost value every single year. But um, there's no guarantee. Um, Unlike Bitcoin and Ethereum and and others that are not pegged to something, um, those those are things where the value is actually just set by the market, which, you know, arguably you could trust more or less depending on uh, your risk appetite. Yeah, Uh, but but it raises the question, which which you set up the answer to, well, but if it's pegged to the dollar, why don't I just use a dollar? I mean, that's so much better. But when you're buying a house, um, you got to see the advantages, potentially at least, of the stable coin. Yeah, so to circle back to the house buying example, in this case, you could just put the private key for whatever cryptocurrency wallet you have, um, put it on a USB stick, carry that in your pocket to the transaction, um, and do the transaction that way. And now you don't have to carry a bunch of cash around with you. I think there's also potential in the future. This is not something I've seen before, but I, I think it's totally possible to have a smart contract ask, act as the escrow agent so that you don't have to find that third party that you trust. Um, you could, there's a lot of different ways that you can implement this, um, but there might be some ways to say, okay, I'm going to put my crypto in this escrow that is handled algorithmically. Um, and I'm going to make one up, but maybe the algorithm is that like there's 10 people who all have to agree that the money was transferred uh, for the money to be able to move. And they all have to sign it with their private keys. And if they all do that, then the money can move. And that's more secure because if you're just trusting one person to physically hold the cash, it's relatively easy for them to run away with it. But if you have 10 people who all have to agree, it's then, and, and if they don't agree, then it just like stays, then um, that's a much safer situation. I, I have not designed these things myself. Um, so there's probably someone out there who will do a much better job, but I think it would be a pretty cool product to, to use. And I think that in Argentina, it would be quite popular. You talked a minute ago about the third party involved in this transaction and that third parties, there are all kinds of third parties when you make a, a large transaction like the sale of a house. Again, in an organized financial system, 
there's title agents and there's the bank and then there's often lawyers and there's the government and in in a in America the those people are all quote trustworthy there's of course, occasionally a, a thief in there, a crook. But in general, the institutions are remarkably reliable. You don't, you don't have anxiety about your title, um, your title agent, um, and you don't have anxiety about whether you're actually owning the house. You, you, <laughs> you, you take a check that you've got from a bank, which is like a stick, but in terms of you can put it in your pocket, uh, and you don't have to worry about your house burning down with the money that you were going to buy the house with or somebody stealing the suitcase that you're rolling to the, to the transaction. But the other thing, in a, say in America and in developed countries with good financial systems and good financial institutions and property rights is that when you buy the house, you know it's yours and you don't really lose any sleep over that. But you seem to imply a minute ago that it's not clear who, that that escrow, that third party person, that escrow agent, there's no question of who owns the house. They don't have a reliable registry of, of ownership. Do you know? I don't know so much about that. I think there might be some title issues in Argentina. Um, but, you know, it's not something I've heard people talk about. And I, I, I get the sense that it's at least lesser than in other Latin American countries. Um, I know, like, in Mexico, there's like a lot of problems with title. But, yeah, I, I don't know if I can speak to that okay. in too much detail without uh, putting my foot in my mouth. Okay. The other thing I want to mention, uh, which you mentioned, which I really like, is the the Benjamin, um, the $100 bill, which has Benjamin Franklin's picture on it. Um, and so it was called, they're called Benjamins. As you point out, most of us in America never see a $100 bill. You might I probably I probably touched 10 in my life. Um Maybe, but you said they're all over Argentina. Yeah, I've seen more $100 bills in Argentina than I've ever seen in my whole life by a very wide margin. Um, there's like a whole culture around $100 bills. Uh, so, I mean, for one thing, people save in $100 bills. Whenever we come to Argentina, whenever we, we visit Argentina, um, my fiance's family will ask us to take out $100 bills. Uh, they, specifically, they want crisp $100 bills ones that are not crisp, that they are, are a little torn or folded, they're worth less. You get you get less for your money on those. Um, I, I've actually not totally sussed out exactly why that is, but people like their dollar bills to be really crisp and clean. Um, and if they have a tear in them, people may not even accept them. Um, and we bring them down and then, you know, it's good for us because when we're in Argentina, we need pesos. So we'll give the $100 bills to his family. His family will give us pesos and like it's a win-win situation. Um, and yeah, so it's, you just get stacks of $100 bills. I, I, we've also had some some members of his family have, well, some people, whenever people, Argentinians travel to the US, um, they also try to open bank accounts here so that they can store money here, which which is legal. Um, it's just not typical. And most, most banks don't love it because they're kind of confused about what's going on, but it's totally fine to do. And a lot of people will open bank accounts here and then try to de deposit their $100 bills here so that they ha have um, their their money sort of in a safe place. And Argentinians will often be anxious that when they try to give their dirty, raggedy $100 bills here, they won't be accepted. But American banks don't care at all. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, sure, like why not? Um, and so some 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 friends came to visit um, several months ago and we like took them to the bank and they were just like shocked that they actually took all, they'd been collecting this like box of ratty $100 bills 
that they hadn't been able to give to the Cueva or to anybody else in Argentina. And they were able, finally able to offload them in the U S um, another, another place. So the, the one place where I've seen the most hundred dollar bills anywhere is actually at a Cueva. So, um, I was able to go to one of the biggest, um, wholesaler Cuevas in, in all of Buenos Aires, uh, last December. And it's, um, it does, it's a wholesaler in the sense that it processes a bunch of cash for retail Cuevas, which have smaller shops all around the city and all around the country. And so this, this place had like stacks of hundred dollar bills, like almost to the ceiling. They were all like wrapped in rubber bands and they have a whole system of couriers who have to bring the money around the city. They, you can always tell who they are because they'll be on a motorcycle in the middle of summer wearing a giant trench coat and the trench coat will be stuffed with hundred dollar bills all up and down. They also have these like custom belts that they wrapped around their bellies um, that are designed to hold stacks of hundred dollar bills. And uh, they're like sweating like bullets, biking through the streets of Argentina. Uh, but you got to keep it covered up. Otherwise, people will see that you have hundred dollar bills. Um, and they'll usually hold, I think I asked them, they said it's like usually about $80,000 on a person at, a, at any given time. And then they'll like move it around the city and deliver it places. Um, and so anyways, yes, hundred dollar bills are a big part of the culture of Argentina. It's very important. But Devin... A guy in a trench coat on a hot summer day is saying, I have $80,000 of cash on me. Don't, are they also, I assume they're armed. Don't they carry a weapon? I think the couriers may not be. Uh, I would want one. It's a good question. <laughs> they, they definitely get robbed. Like they, they have stories of getting robbed. Um, they, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't think to ask that question, but I, I hope they do because it's a pretty dangerous job. Yeah. Um, of course, $100 bills have a long history in the United States as well. You quote um, Edgar Froggy, the economist, that $100 bills make up 80% of all U.S. currency by value and 34% of all bills in circulation. So it's a puzzle, of course, given that they make up about 1%, much less than 1% of the bills that I've touched in my lifetime in America. And so where are they? Well, they're in Argentina, uh, for starters, which is pleasant for Americans, because those are green pieces of paper that are not coming back to make claims on U.S. goods and services. Uh, they're just being used for the store value that's worth it to Argentinians. And that's that's pleasant for Americans. Um, but of course, in America, they are used quite extensively for, not surprisingly, illegal transactions. Um, drug dealers and 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 uh, organized crime use hundred dollar bills in exactly the same way that Argentinians do. They got to hide stuff from the government. They need to have a store value, and it's much more pleasant to hold one hundred dollar bill than a hundred ones. Uh, otherwise, the stacks go through the ceiling, and the suitcase has to be a trunk or a or a small U-Haul. So they're always a value for people who want to be avoided by the government. And sometimes it's criminals and sometimes it's uh, citizens of Argentina. I actually have a funny story about that. So um, last December, uh, I invited a big group of friends, about 30, 30 people down to Argentina. And we had a big dinner at like one of the most expensive um, restaurants in the city, which it, and it ended up being like $40 per person in dollars. Uh, so by U.S. standards, not terribly expensive, but super expensive in Argentina. Very nice food. 
And um, something that the Argentinian government does, like they, they like to pretend that there is no inflation. Um, everyone knows that there's inflation that you cannot hide it, but the government has this sort of like double think, double speak kind of thing where they're like, oh no, no, there's no inflation. And one of the ways that they express this is by not printing larger denominations of bills. So I believe the the largest denomination is a thousand pesos, which um, a thousand, I mean, what's the math there? It's like, that's worth, I think $3. Okay. No, maybe it's 10,000. I don't know. It's not, it's not a terribly large amount of money. Um, and so all of our friends and we, we all had to pay for this dinner that we went to, um, like $40 dinner and the, the, the pile of cash that we had to give the waiter just to like pay for this meal was a mountain. I could probably send you, I could probably find a picture and send it to you later if, if you wanted to include it in the show notes. Um, and everyone was just laughing like, this is so ridiculous. And it's simply because the government does not want to admit that there's inflation. And if they were to print a, a higher denomination bill, there would be, um, that would be strong evidence of inflation. And a, a related fun fact about this is that if you get uh, any bill in Argentina and you smell it, you can smell that it's very fresh um, because it was probably just printed very recently <laughs> because the, the majority of bills have been printed in the last few years. This, this is how inflation and, and exponentials go, right? <laughs> um, so they're all very crisp and they smell nice and like they're all really good. Uh, you can you can always tell. And if you get an old one, you're it's it's kind of like oh wow, this has been around for a while. Like this used to be worth a lot of money, uh, <laughs> but it's not anymore. <laughs> That's not funny. I apologize for for laughing, but <laughs> I, I used to carry in my wallet. Um, I don't think I have it anymore, but I used to carry in my wallet a trillion dollar. I think it was trillion a trillion dollar Zimbabwe note which I'm sure you can still buy on the internet. Somebody gave it to me. I think it's worth whatever, a quarter or 50 cents or a dollar or something. I don't know whether that was a joke or real, but but the, the underlying phenomenon is is tragic. And, it, and it, you know, I joked, not joked, I mentioned earlier people in uh, uh, post-World War I Germany. It was also true in post-World War II Germany, actually, also, that, that wheelbarrows had to be used by people, the equivalent of a suitcase, to carry large amounts of the domestic currency to make it an everyday purchase because the inflation had made their the prices so high in terms of the the denomination of the, the, that was available and um yeah that was a, i'm sure it was a big mountain it really was um one other aspect of inflation that i think that Americans really don't understand. And like, I really did not understand until I spent time in Argentina was that inflation propagates very unevenly. So, you know, the, our simplified economic models of inflation is like, you know, if, if there's 50% inflation in a year now, suddenly all the prices will be a, approximately 50% more. Um, but that's actually not correct. Like what ends up happening is very different. Some things end up going up in price much faster than others. So there's this sort of, you know, you can see this in cooking. Um, any given week, there might be some random thing that's like weird, very weirdly expensive. And so suddenly people will just stop cooking with that item. Last time I was in Argentina, this, this item happened to be cheese. I don't have a model for why cheese was randomly expensive. Um, but all I know is that like the, all the pasta that um, my, my fiance's family made for us that week had no cheese on it. Um, just because suddenly cheese was like five times more expensive than it normally would have been relative to other prices. Um, this also has some really harmful effects for individual people. Um, so different types of jobs have much more pricing power 
in their wages. And so um, if you think about basically the a rough rule of thumb that's useful is that as the as your wage is more up a, a percentage of the prices that your boss sets, the better off you are. So if you're a waiter and your tips are a percentage of prices, then your your the restaurant's owner is very motivated to update the prices as quickly as possible, but they're less motivated to update your wage as quickly as possible. But luckily, if you have your tip as a percentage of the price, now you capture some of that. Yeah, you're, ins- the, you're the, insulated. Who, it's a fantastic example. I love that. And if you're on the opposite end of this equation, um, it would be someone like a retiree with a pension. So there's a lot of people who have who have pensions. Let's say you retired in 1998. The, the value of your pension back then is completely worthless now. Like you, you should not even, um, you know, plan on it. Um, a, a category that would be somewhere in the middle is something like um, architects or uh, home contractors. This this hits close to home because my fiance's uh, parents are a an architect and a contractor, and they have some stories of uh, in the I believe it was the the hyperinflation of the late 1980s. Um, they were building houses, and there were some people who were supposed to pay them on a Monday, and the people said, "Oh, sorry, you know, actually, I'm out of town right now. I'm going to pay you on Friday." And by Friday, that price that they had agreed on was completely worthless. Um, and when you when you work for really large, big fixed um, fees like that, where you say, "Here's my fee, and we'll pay you'll pay me like six months in the future, or even a week in the future," when you have hyperinflation, it can really affect what your your effective in, income is. So, long story short, there's there's just a lot of um, heterogeneity in the way that inflation will impact different people in the economy. And some people will be really, really, really hurt in a way that other people will not be. Um, and tends to harm people with less economic power much more than people with more options and more economic power. Yeah, the point I was trying, I was alluding to earlier at the very beginning of the conversation, I think I mentioned it, is that the problem with inflation is partly what you said, the, the fact that it's erratic um, in terms of its impact. Although some of that I think might be just be regular price fluctuations that are going to get uh, exacerbated by the inflation rate, make it larger than it would be. If there were no inflation in in Argentina, I suspect that was a bad week for cheese for some other reason. I'm not sure it was that inflation had a bad impact on cheese. Say. It's hard to know. But the the bigger problem is that you can't anticipate this, the magnitude of it. If inflation was steady, if it was high, high in, a, in America would be 25%, say, or 20%. Or even fifty percent, but if you knew it was steady, then you could plan accordingly. If when you make a contract, and I know that prices are going to be going up a hundred percent a year, doubling, then uh, product. Uh, when I make a contract for a year from now, I take that into account when I set my price, and I don't get hurt. Uh, I only get hurt because, or the person on the other side of the contract only gets hurt when the actual rate of inflation turns out to be different than was anticipated, which of course is almost always the case. Can't You can't accurately anticipate it. So it's a whole additional level of uncertainty that exists in international transactions all the time because currency rates fluctuate and people who transact in global markets have to anticipate that and often will insure against it. But when it's in your domestic currency, you do. You have to do some things that are very costly, like like buying bricks or doing other things that have no real economic value, and are simply done to insulate yourself from the uh, the worst downsides of of uh, unexpected price changes. So it's a, it's a really um, 
as I said, such a fascinating, tragic but fascinating laboratory in how an economy works when you when you're as you were in a situation, a physical place where the where prices bite, where inflation bites. Not just like, oh, cost of living is going up a little bit. I want maybe I'll get a better raise next year when it comes time to adjust. But no, your savings are wiped out. Your the the work you did over the last six months turns out to be half of what you expected to get in return because prices have changed in terms of what you can do with the money that you get when the price comes due, the contract comes due. So really an amazing uh, uh, and tragic example of how money, which is a great uh, lubricant for economic transactions when it isn't correctly, uh, when it's abused, uh, you get costs and it's very sad. Yeah. And I mean, just to tie that up, I mean, at the beginning, I joked that every dinner conversation in Argentina ends up on the topic of what to do about your money so it doesn't lose value. And it's kind of, it's kind of funny, but it's also, if you think about it, it's really wasting the minds of generations of people. Um, there's all these really smart people who are spending half of their brain just trying to figure out how to store their money yeah. so that they don't get wiped out tomorrow. Um, and so, it's something that it's it's just it's just really tragic. I see all these really smart people who I love who could be doing so much more, but they're they're stuck in this cycle. Um, and so, I guess that one last idea is that I think it would be really excellent if Argentina or Argentinians, not the government, because the government's probably not going to do this, could implicitly dollarize everything. So I mentioned that. Um, Housing prices are, are priced in dollars. A few other big goods, sometimes like cars, will be priced in dollars. If the entire economy could switch over to dollars or to crypto or something like that and just get out of the clutches of the government, they could finally escape this trap. This is something that the, the government is imposing on them. Um, and I, th I think that it is possible. Like uh, there, there are countries that have done this. Um, Ecuador also had a bunch of Real, very serious inflation issues. Uh, and I think it was in 2001, maybe 2000, they they fully dollarized. That was actually triggered by the government uh, because there had been a crisis. Maybe the Argentinian government could do it. I would love to personally see like a bottoms up change where people, could, I, I, and I think this is possible now maybe with remote work where more people are earning in dollars. Um, I think little pockets of the Argentinian economy could dollarize or move to some other currency uh, without the government's oversight. And over time, those those little pockets could grow. So there's glimmers of hope, but uh, it would take a lot of work. And I think some maybe some big philanthropists could could work on this problem. I think it would make a big difference. Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. And I think the, the other part that's interesting, and again, this came up indirectly in the conversation with, uh, not indirectly, came up directly in the conversation with Mark Andreessen recently, is that you know, when you talk about cryptocurrency uh, in a developed economy, uh, people like to make fun of it. Oh, you've got to remember the wallet number. And isn't that that's absurd? And if you forget, you lose all your money. And so no one, this is a ridiculous idea. It may be a ridiculous idea, by the way. I'm an, I, am, I, am a, I remain agnostic uh, on Bitcoin's future and cryptocurrency in general's future. But it has a powerful role potentially to play in an economy like Argentina, Argentina's because the alternatives have their own problems that are quite horrifying. And the the um, what's fantastic for me in, in thinking about this is that 
the market, un, by the market, I mean voluntary, uncoerced, bottom-up activity, has begun to create an alternative that in at least the Argentinian economy, and we had a, a great episode on uh, the Venezuelan economy as well, where the the crypto um, side of it is an end around to avoid being abused by your government. It's incredible. Yeah, and people do solve problems. I mean, um, I think the optimistic case for Argentina is that it's filled with very smart people who understand a lot of things about the, how the world works. Um, and so if, as soon as they get out of traps like that, I think they, they can end up doing some pretty amazing things. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised if we ended up seeing a lot of uh, financial innovation come out of Argentina, because these are people who live and breathe foreign exchange rates. <laughs> like there's uh, talk, talking to most people in America about crypto, they get really messed, like they get really um, confused just sort of about different exchange rates between crypto and so on. Argentinians <laughs> are like, the, the, my fiance says something hilarious. He says like, you know, um, you, you embrace the darkness. I was born in it. <laughs> and, and in that sense, like the Argentinians really understand um, these types of problems. And I think it, it, it equips them to solve other types of problems in the future. That's cool. Um, silver lining anyway, that, that Venezuela episode, by the way, was with Jim Epstein. Uh, you can find it in our archive and I'll, of course, we'll put up links to all the other, um, Bitcoin episodes. Uh, let, let's close with the, um, how the Cuevas use crypto, which is, um, a lot of times you, you point out a lot of times they're using it behind the scenes because they don't want to be using pesos all the time and that their, um, sophistication, uh, with crypto is perhaps um, reliant on some young people who may not be quite as <laughs> trustworthy as they might hope. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, I should caveat this by saying my information is now six months out of date because I haven't been to Argentina since December. And I expect that things have maybe more than six months. Oh, man, it's October. I, it's a bit out of date. It's nine months. I'll be going pretty soon again. Um and so what I'm saying was true in December of 2021, and things have probably changed since then. Um, <clears throat> but um, so I alluded to before how the the Cuevas will have couriers on motorcycles moving money around the city. And with the rise of crypto, they no longer have to move ever, all of their money physically. They can actually just move it over the wires, um, which is great because now these co there's no couriers who are going to get robbed and uh, have to wear trench coats in the middle of the summer. And um, so instead of moving U.S. dollars, they can move USDC or USDT, which is a different type of stable coin, but for, for this pur the purposes of this conversation, very similar. And this has been great for them because it's reducing their costs of moving the money around, which can pass on to the customer as better exchange rates. Um, they still cannot move pesos through uh through wires I, although i think someone actually did make a peso stable coin which um i joked is sort of the the classic it, it's it's not the most stable stable coin let's just put it that way <laughs> um and so they're, they're able to put more money through wires they're also able to do international transactions much more easily so if you think about it when you when you go to a cueva in argentina and you get a 100 bill they had to get that from somewhere and uh, historically, a, a major source of dollars has been Uruguay, which is the country just 
um, I guess, east of Argentina across the, the river. And Uruguay has um, does not have a fixed exchange rate. It's much more liberalized than Argentina is, much more sane economy in many ways. Uh, and actually just an interesting source of reading where it's like, its history is pretty similar to Argentina's, but it ended up doing much better um, in, in some ways. So anyway, that's a side note. So these Cuevas had to cross the river to Uruguay, get the $100 bills there, and then cross the river again illegally. That had a lot of risks. It's very time consuming. Now they're able to do many more of those transactions over the wire. So this is great for Cuevas. However, something that was very concerning to me when I went and spoke with some Cuevas last December doing some research for this project was realizing that they used Binance, which is a, a centralized app to store their products, their, their cash and all their money. They have all their crypto inside of Binance. And for a moment, I thought, oh, maybe they're just like temporarily putting it in Binance so they can transfer it to their customers to make this more easily, more easy. But then they have like cold storage somewhere that is safer. Um, but they confirmed like, no, no, we have all of our storage inside of Binance. And as I poked more, I realized that they don't, they didn't realize that Binance itself is not super trustworthy. Um, for one thing, it's it's just centralized. So technically, it's quite easy for Binance to take away the crypto if they want. But also historically, people have people in the crypto ecosystem have pointed out issues with Binance, and a number of people, like executives, have had a bunch of issues at Binance that make it less than trustworthy. I'll, I'll leave to the reader the exercise of re looking up the articles for this. Um, but like, I wouldn't want to store millions of dollars in Binance. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and <laughs> kind of hit me that when I was in one of them, uh, I wanted to try doing a crypto transaction with this guy just to like see what it was like. And to do it, the 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 lead, the, the manager in the Cueva, who was an older professional guy who had been running it for a long time, he called to the back and this like 17 year old kid with a Binance app comes out and starts like exchanging the, the crypto with me. And you know, I'm sure he's a very bright young kid, but he is not running this business. It's kind of no skin off his back if like something goes wrong. And I do not think that he either knows or is like fully communicating to uh, his manager exactly the risks of the technology that they've chosen. Um, what I would do if I were them is have like a hardware wallet or something else that no one else can touch and put that in a safe and protect it, you know, immensely. Um, and... So anyway, it was a long way of saying that I think the Cuevas, at least in December, were doing something that I thought was really unsafe. And I found it quite ironic, given that Argentinians, of all people, should distrust centralized institutions like that. They've seen this happen before. Uh, and to them, it seems to be that like they just mostly care that it's not the government and it's not one of their local banks. And it's probably a better bet than putting it in those institutions. But I think they could do a lot better. And um in the last nine months with so many different crypto exchanges failing and stable coins getting unpegged, I'm wondering maybe when I go back to December, maybe they've learned their lesson. Um, but I expect that at least some of them had to learn it the hard way. Well, it sounds like an opportunity for you to open a Cueva on your next trip back. <laughs> <laughs> I, there is probably a business opportunity yeah. there. <laughs> My guest today has been Devin Zugel. Devin, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This was a fun conversation.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.